Well, if you've been keeping track of financial news, it appears dark days are on the horizon. Inflation is surging. Supplies are short. Drought is hitting the country. And there's war in Europe. It's not altogether unlike the situation right before the Great Depression about 100 years ago. October 19th, 1929 is known as Black Tuesday. That was the tipping point of the greatest stock market crash in history. It's where the bottom completely fell out of the market and panic selling took over. Thousands of investors and bankers were wiped out. And in just five hours of that stock market crash, the U.S. lost more money than had just been spent on World War I. A nearly decade-long Great Depression followed. Many people didn't take those dark days so well. There are some who had lost everything that resorted to suicide. Now, granted, some of the stories have turned into tall tales as if there was a line of bankers waiting to jump out of skyscraper windows. But there were several recorded instances of ruined bankers jumping to their death or otherwise taking their own lives. There's an account of one man named Lytle who took his life in a hotel in Milwaukee. He left behind a note that read, quote, My body should go to science, my soul to Andrew W. Mellon, and sympathy to my creditors, end quote. Obviously, he had a mountain of debt that could not and now never would be repaid. But I found that a very interesting and telling quote, how he did not reference God in his letter, but he left his soul to Andrew Mellon. Mellon was an ultra-wealthy banker. He's the Mellon behind Carnegie Mellon University. He was also the U.S. Secretary of Treasury during the market crash. And sadly, this young man did not think his soul belonged to God, but to Mellon, the Lord of the marketplace. In reality, though, this man did believe in God, as did all those who committed suicide. It's just that they, they chose the wrong God. They chose to worship and bow down to money as their God. They lived for money. They sacrificed for money. They loved money. They made wealth their Lord and master. And at times their God seemed to bless them and care for them. But wealth is a fickle God. Wealth is a false God. And sure enough, it was only a matter of time before their God forsook them and left them with nothing. When I think about these sad souls who took their own lives, it it appears that they had the total opposite of an eternal perspective. Theirs was a completely limited, myopic, present perspective. They lived only for the here and now. And having sold out to money as their God, when the market crashed, their God died. Their hope was lost. They lost all reason to live. They shouldn't have, but they did. And so they just chose to stop living. It's a terrifying thought because they all then woke up to judgment. They all immediately discovered that they chose the wrong God and they served the wrong master. There are a plethora of idols to choose from today. There always have been. They they don't always have to be little wooden statues. You can serve health or pleasure, comfort, control, material things, family. The list goes on. But all such idols will eventually fail you. They'll fail to satisfy and then comes judgment. So you had better choose wisely. There is only one God in heaven. You had better serve him. You're not to love money with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but but God and God alone. And that is essentially the message Jesus has for us today in our text. And that's Matthew 6. 19 through 24. So turn there in your Bibles as we resume our way through Matthew's gospel. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. 
Last week, we started into this passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching on wealth. And Jesus spoke on wealth way more than any other social issue. It seems he knew money talks. Money reveals the heart of man. Follow the money and you'll find what a person is living for. You'll find whom or what they are serving. God's not against wealth. He owns it all. He gives every good gift to his children. He made this whole world for us to steward and enjoy. But he never intended for us to confuse the creation with the creator or the gift with the giver. What a, what a slap in the face it is to God to take his good gifts and to live for them while ignoring him. That is, in a word, idolatry. Now, as Christians, we have turned away from such idols. We have returned by grace to the living God. But we still must keep watch over our souls because we are not immune to greed. You must never confuse masters. Money makes a great tool, but a poor master. And Jesus here is effectively admonishing his disciples to serve God alone. And far be it from us to appear as true worshipers on the outside, but on the inside in our hearts to be living for worshiping something else like wealth. And that was the case for Israel's religious leaders at the time. They did not love God, but self evidenced in many ways, one of which was their love for money. They were greedy, materialistic. They even claimed that their wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Jesus shoots down that notion. The priesthood amongst the various uh, forms of Israel's leadership, the priests especially had it good because they had a monopoly on the temple grounds and the whole operation that the money changing, the concessions, selling of sacrificial animals, that the whole operation they owned. Twice, Jesus overturned their money tables. That was one of the main reasons the priests, the Sadducees and the priests wanted to kill Jesus. He was messing with their racket. But greed, covetousness, materialism all ran deep in that culture. But there's nothing new under the sun. So long as there will be human civilization until the Lord returns, there will be greed. This is certainly true for us Americans. We're living in what I think has to be the most consumeristic, materialistic, capitalistic society ever. I mean, the air we breathe smells of money. It's just in our nation's bloodstream. So the temptation is even greater for us to serve wealth, to love it, to make money our, our purpose, our life's desire. It's the American dream. But Christians today all the more so need to examine self and take care that there not be found in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And such a heart often shows itself in your checkbook. We all need to consider our relationship to wealth and what it says about us and let our living and our giving reflect a heart that really does serve and worship God alone. That's a challenge from this passage. Let's read it again as we'll finish it this morning. This is Matthew six nineteen through 24. And listen along as I read it again. So where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We found here that Jesus lays out three choices that reveal the God you serve. Three choices that reveal the God you serve. You have a choice between two types of treasure, two types of eyes, two types of masters. How you choose says everything about you and and your real God. Last week, we devoted all of our attention to the first choice in the form of a question, where do you store your treasure? That came from verses 19 through 21, where we found that the location of your treasure reveals the location of your heart. Christ is not forbidding us from possessing wealth or even savings, but greed, covetousness, miserly hoarding, betray a heart that does not treasure God. Instead, the true disciple is generous using his treasure with his heavenly inheritance in mind. Now, the remaining verses, 22 through 24, carry on these thoughts and reinforce the call to be generous, not greedy, to serve God and not wealth. Here, Jesus gives us two more choices that are going to reveal, diagnose the God you serve. Now, I can't say I apologize for splitting up this text into two sermons because in our day and age, especially, we need a double antidote against greed and twice the reminder to, to serve God, not wealth. And so we're going to get that today. We carry on now with number two, the second choice. The first, by way of a question, where do you store your treasure? Secondly, now let's carry on. Where do you set your eyes? Where do you set your eyes from verses 22 And 23, and go ahead and look there again. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, many have said, actually, this this might be one of the, the most difficult sayings of Jesus to understand. The analogy is simple enough, but the meaning can be elusive, especially in relation to the context. Like, what does this have to do about money? Right before, clearly talking about wealth. Right after, certainly talking about wealth. What does this have to do with that? It's important to remember that there are several gaps between us and the original biblical author and audience. And sound Bible interpretation often comes down to rightly bridging these gaps. For example, there's the language gap, the grammar gap, the culture gap. That includes the the history gap, the geography gap. We need to cross many of these gaps to arrive at what Jesus means. So we're going to do that. We're going to have to dive into this verse. Otherwise, it just remains kind of an enigma. What did he actually mean by these two verses? We want to know. So first, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Lamp has in mind that the ancient uh, lamp filled with uh, oil, kind of like the genie's lamp, that little thing. You all know what it looks like. It was every home's nightly source of illumination. And he's comparing your eye to that lamp. 
the eye is not a lamp in the sense of being a light source per se, but the eye is effectively the source of illumination for the body. For the eye is the organ that lets all light in. We have no perception of light apart from the eyes. The whole body relies on two tiny eyes for all of its illumination and therefore direction. So needless to say, it's important to have a good set of eyes. Jesus likewise is saying it, you better have good eyes. That's the contrast he's building. It's between two eye conditions and the results. And that would be, he says, between clear eyes and bad eyes. Or your translation might say healthy eyes or unhealthy eyes. And since the eye is the effective light source for the body, if your eye is clear, he says your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of dark. You can picture a car is fully caked in mud, windows included. And on the inside, the windows might let little tiny cracks of light through, but overall, the inside of that car will be quite dark. All right, so far on the surface, it's understandable, but still, what point is Jesus making? He's building a metaphor here. He's using the body to represent us, our lives, our, our being. He's using eyes to represent our hearts. Now, I want to take a second to display that to you. This passage is not about literal eye health. Jesus is not trying to be an ophthalmologist here. He's more like a spiritual cardiologist. This is about the heart. In the verse before, he addressed his main point. Where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. The heart refers to who we are on the inside. It's the center of our being, the source of our thoughts and attitudes, desires. And the condition of the heart is still in view here. That hasn't changed, actually. It was Shakespeare who said, the windows are the eye to the soul or the heart. And he very well could have taken inspiration from this verse. This is not a novel metaphor. Throughout the Bible, eyes often stand for the heart. So Proverbs 21 verse 4 speaks of haughty eyes and a proud heart in parallel. Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays for the, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. John 12.40 speaks of how God blinded the eyes and hardened the hearts of the Jews. Again, that, that means the same thing, used in parallel. In scripture, to set your heart on something and to fix your eyes on something oftentimes just means the same thing. And that is how Jesus is using eyesight in these verses. He just finished talking about having your heart fixed on the right thing. Now he's going to build on that, having your hearts or eyes fixed on the right thing. All right, let's keep going. We learn even more by considering the specific terms behind this contrast. He's making a contrast between two heart or eye conditions. In NASB, that's between verse 22. It says clear eyes. Verse 23 says bad eyes. We've got to do a little digging here, a little word study. Again, what does this mean? So the word for clear is haplous in the Greek. It literally means single or simple. And when used of eyesight, it speaks of seeing things as they are simply, i.e. clear. Single vision. Single vision is is good vision. Double vision is bad vision. The cognate noun is used of being single-minded, not having a, a double motive. It speaks of simplicity or sincerity. So we're talking about eyes that are clear here, not in the sense that they're free from disease, but in the sense that they're single 
or focused. The eye that is clear represents a heart that is single-minded or singularly focused. Still in mind would be that the single focus of storing up your treasure in heaven, which reflects a heart that's fixed on the Lord. And conversely, you don't want to be double-eyed, double-minded. Verse 23 says, if your eye is bad, and that's the term for evil, ponairas, it means wicked or mischievous. What is bad vision to the Lord other than that vision which is focused on other things? But there's, there's still yet another layer here. You know, so far, again, this teaching makes sense. The Lord wants single-minded eyes slash hearts, not double-minded. But the connection to wealth runs even deeper. Verse 23, Jesus speaks of the eye that is evil. Literally, the evil eye. Now, you've heard of the concept of the evil eye. Many cultures associate it with bringing a curse on someone but not the ancient Jews. In ancient Judaism, the eye that is evil referred to what? Referred to greed, jealousy, covetousness. Listen to this, Proverbs 28, verse 22. says, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. Proverbs 23, verse 6, it says, do not eat the bread of a stingy man. Literally in the Hebrew, do not eat the bread of an evil eye. Or in the New Testament, you recall the parable of the vineyard workers. The workers were upset because the master gave the late workers the same wage as the early workers. But the master replies, Matthew 20, 15. He says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Literally, is your eye evil because I'm generous? Same term. And so, so get this, in this metaphor, the bad eye in verse 23 is not simply talking about the double-minded, the generally evil eye. It, it has in mind specifically in the culture, the evil eye, greed, materialism, covetousness, miserliness. He's calling out the eye that is not fixed on the Lord, but on wealth. And that perfectly fits the context. This is probably why Jesus switched metaphors from the heart to the eye, because culturally the evil eye spoke of greed. And with this in mind, it's not surprising to find that there's a deeper layer to verse 22 as well. Notice again, the contrast Jesus is making. It's not between a good eye and a bad eye, which you'd probably expect, right? Good versus bad. He could have said that, but that would not have been as precise a contrast. But if evil eye is to be taken culturally as the greedy eye, what's, what's the opposite of a greedy eye? He's, wouldn't you say a generous eye? But what do you know? The, the term Jesus chose in verse 22 for clear also speaks of generosity. Again, that term haplous in the Greek and its cognate terms, they're sometimes used to describe generosity. When used in a context of giving, they speak of giving without duplicity, meaning giving bountifully, not holding back. For example, it's used in James 1.5. It says, but if any of you lacks uh, wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. Same term. In 2 Corinthians 8.2, Paul applauds the Macedonian churches because their giving overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. Same term. So I, I know I'm laboring this, but 
the meaning of these two verses, they will be elusive until you get back to the, the culture, the language of the day. But here we have Jesus making a contrast between two eyes, which often represent the heart. And he chooses words, which on the surface can refer to a, a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye. But these two terms also have a range of meaning to refer to a greedy eye or a generous eye. That's not a coincidence. Like that's, that's the whole point. If Jesus had continued his metaphor using the heart, it wouldn't have worked as much. But switching metaphors over to the eye allowed him to build this contrast between the evil eye and the clear eye. Which is to say, hearts fixed on greed and hearts fixed on generosity. And so really now we learn that what Jesus says is simply building off of what he just said, verses 19 through 21. Back there, right? The location of your treasure reveals the location of your heart. Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth. We learn that's, that's not talking about just not having a savings account. It's talking about greed and covetousness, miserly, selfish hoarding. It's talking about the person whose heart is fixed on wealth. That's in contrast to the person whose heart is fixed on the Lord, evidenced by them storing up their treasure in heaven, that they care more about their heavenly inheritance. The previous passage really was a contrast between two types of hearts. One set on wealth, the other on the Lord. One fixed on greed, the other fixed on generosity, right? Well, in these next few verses, it's, it's the same thing. The same contrast is in mind. One person has eyes or a heart fixed on greed. The other has eyes or a heart fixed on generosity. But now actually verses 22 and 23 take this teaching further by contrasting the results of these two different eye or heart conditions. Uh, We're laboring. We're almost there. But you see how verse 22 and 23, it's not just a contrast between two eyes, but two outcomes. Verse 22 says, if your eye is clear, then the whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is evil, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And that's the real contrast now, the outcome of these two heart or eye conditions. Just as the eye affects the whole body, So where we fix our eyes affects your whole life. And Jesus is now talking about spiritual blindness. How much you are able to receive and perceive spiritual truth is determined by the state of your eyes or your heart. Now, you know, before salvation, we were completely spiritually blind. Romans 1.21 says our foolish hearts were darkened. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that as the natural man, we were unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Worse yet, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says the God of this world, Satan, blinded our minds that we could not see the, the glory of the gospel. We were spiritually blind. In salvation, that changes. Now, on our end, how do we receive the gift of salvation? On our end, you must look upon Jesus and believe. You must repent of your sins, cry out to the Savior who died, who rose again to make full payment on your behalf. You must confess Jesus as Lord, submit your whole life to him as your master. That's what you must do. 
But you can only do that because God first opens the eyes of your heart to finally behold the glory of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it says, God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Meaning the same God who said, let there be light, is the one who speaks light into your soul, enabling you to believe. All of a sudden, you can see. Your eyes are open. You behold truth and error, right and wrong. You see Christ as the only Savior and the only hope. And so you run to him. Now, by the power of the Spirit, you're made new. You're given new eyes to see him, a new mind to know him, a new heart to love him. But the sinful flesh remains, as does temptation, which seeks to draw us away from our first love. And the more we give into temptation and walk in the darkness, we're denying the truth. We go back to living as if we're still in the darkness. It's like you're, you're putting a blindfold around you once again. We return to the darkness. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. So keep a bookmark in Matthew 6 and go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Turn there briefly. He's speaking here to believers, to those who have placed that faith in Christ. They've come to confess him as Lord and Savior. They're following him. Yet we still have to watch over our walk or how we live. So look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. He says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And how is that? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. We're being told here not to walk as the Gentiles walk or not to live as the unbeliever. We have to be told this precisely because it is possible for us to do this. Though justified, you can go back to living as if you're spiritually darkened. That happens when you lose sight of Christ. You take your heart off of him. You set it on something else. Quite often, that something else is money. As the next verse goes, verse 19, still speaking of the unbeliever, it says, and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but it just so happens that in about every list in the scriptures of of serious sin, egregious sin, vile sin, just about every list, greed shows up. Isn't that interesting? Look at Ephesians 5, verse 5. He says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Greed and covetousness show up in every list, and they're always linked to idolatry. Listen to Colossians 3, 5. Relatedly, Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
He says, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. Point is, we're no longer sons of disobedience. We have been saved by Christ. We're made children of God. Therefore, we must no longer live in sin. Notably here, greed. You know, the number one way to dispel the darkness that remains in your flesh is to fill it with light. Right? Darkness flees when the light turns on. This is why you must always, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Fix your eyes, your heart on the Lord. When your eye is clear, then your whole body will be full of light. You will see things clearly. You'll be spiritually minded. When, you're, when your heart or your eye is fixing, when your eye is greedy, when you set your heart on the things of this world, you're going to be full of darkness. You're keeping the light of Christ out. Again, it's as if you've blindfolded yourself. And so you're walking as if you're in the dark. Greed robs you of spiritual perspective and, and heavenly mindedness. The point is greed steals spiritual perspective. And that's what Jesus means. Greed will rob you and blind you to spiritual perspective. And you have no hope of navigating this life to God's glory or your own true good without that spiritual perspective. I mean, the greedy literally lose sight of all the truths we're called to set our minds on daily. To, to calibrate us, the compass of truth that we need to walk rightly. The greedy are blind to that. What are some of these truths, these gospel truths we need to remind ourselves and wash ourselves in daily? Well, the fact that we were lost, dead sinners. For Christ the Savior has come. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. We're now justified by faith in him, fully secured by him. Our home now is with him in heaven. This world is not our home. This world is passing away. But we're waiting for Jesus to come. And in the meantime, we're to be salt and light in this world. We have a mission in this world to testify and reach the lost. We're to seek first his kingdom. We're even to use our wealth for his kingdom. Is that all true? Do you believe all that? All those statements? But those who set their hearts and fix their eyes on this world and its treasures, when it captures them, they lose sight of all that truth. They become earthly minded, not heavenly minded, and they effectively live as the lost. And sometimes people will, will jab Christians for being so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. And it's true, we must not be passive in this life. But from God's perspective, you will never be of any earthly good until you're heavenly minded. Don't be deceived like the Pharisees. Examine your heart. Take off the blindfold. Have you been fixing your hope on wealth? There's a special woe to those like the Pharisees who they're convinced that they know God, even though they're completely blind. That's like those in Titus 1.16 who says they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. And this, I believe, is what, uh, what's behind the end of Matthew 6, 23, you, want, you can go back to Matthew 6. At the end of verse 23, he says, If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? There's no worse condition than being convinced you're in the light when in reality you're, you're blind. You're in the dark. 
That is how blinding and deceitful riches can be. It can even lead some to fall away. Listen again to what Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. Looked at that last week, but 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For not just money, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you walk around blindfolded long enough, you're you're bound to trip, to stumble, to fall. And such are the lives of those who set their hearts, their eyes on greed and goods. And worse yet, being blindfolded, you risk walking off a cliff. And Paul says, some have wandered away from the faith. Have you ever known someone like this? That they, they leave the faith because of love for this world and things of this world? They're just like the seed sown among the thorns in the parable of the sower, which says that the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, becomes unfruitful. Now, Paul speaks of such people in Philippians 3. He says they're now enemies of the cross of Christ. People who once professed and fell away and never born again, they're now clearly enemies of the cross of Christ. He says of them, listen to this, Philippians 3.19. He said, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. You know, he'd be part of that list would be Demas. And Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10, he warned to not be like Demas. Demas abandoned the Lord. He abandoned Paul. Why? Paul says, this is because he loved this present world. And that's it right there. Just that the love of this present world world and the things of this world. For us, it's supposed to be the opposite, which Paul reminds us of in the next verse in Philippians 3, verse 20, where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our savior is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Our reward is in heaven. Our life is in heaven. It's only when you fix your heart on the Lord, that you gain all this spiritual perspective, which is essential to run your race. So in all then, we must heed the implicit warning in Christ's words, which would be not to fix your heart on wealth. Do not live for riches. Do not love money. Beware greed, covetousness, materialism. They all lead to spiritual darkness and the ruin that goes with it. But instead, fix your heart completely on the Lord. Seek first his kingdom and heavenly treasure. Serve him with your life, including your wealth. He didn't give you all your wealth just to spend it all on your pleasures. It's to serve him with. You've got a choice to make. Whom will you serve? There's only one throne on your heart. Who gets to sit on that throne? God or wealth? And that really is the final ultimate choice Jesus sets before us that reveals the God you serve. That third choice would be, where do you report for duty? Where do you store your treasure? Where do you set your eyes? And thirdly now, we might say, where do you report for duty? This is verse 24 in Matthew 6. 
where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In verses 19 through 21, he made a contrast between two treasures. Verses 22 through 23, made a contrast between two eyes, two visions. And now lastly, a, a contrast between two masters. But here in the end, he's cutting to the chase. This is what he's talking about. This final question gets to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the master of the heart. That's what this whole sex is when money uses you and masters you. And money comes to master you when it captures your heart, your affection. Though this world has fallen, it's still filled with many good things for us to steward and enjoy. But because we too are fallen, it's just way too easy for us to be seduced. Idols to form in your heart. These false gods, they will fail you. They'll forsake you. They will pierce you with many griefs. Don't repeat the error the Jews fell into in many ways. Reflected in Jeremiah 2.13, where God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a bad trait. The only people who enter the kingdom are those who have Jesus as their Lord. We're saved by grace through faith in him, apart from works. Confessing him as Lord, Romans 10.9. That word Lord means master. It's the same word Jesus uses here in verse 24. It's the word for Lord, master. He's saying you can't have two lords. You can't have two masters. It is possible to have two employers. Many people split their time between jobs. They come under the authority of two bosses. No big deal. But it is not possible to have two masters. Lordship uh, speaks of total ownership over another. It's not possible to have two masters any more than it's possible to walk in two directions at the same time. So who is your real master, God or wealth? When push comes to shove and you have an either or, whom do you follow? Who has the final say? Who's captured your heart and affections? Those who try and serve two masters, they're going to end up betraying one of them. One will be loved, the other will be hated. You'll be devoted to one. You'll despise the other. And this term for being devoted to speaks of lining up face to face with someone. You can only turn your face to one God. The other one gets your back. So whom are you facing? God or wealth? On whom have you turned your back? God or wealth? Speaking of wealth, there's an interesting Aramaic term behind the word. It's mammon which speaks of wealth personified. Many believe it has in the background an ancient pagan money God. But it pictures the wayward believer as as bowing down to this God. God made us to worship. All people, they're going to worship. They're going to give themselves to someone or something. But there's only one God. There's only one Lord. You had better serve him. Throughout these verses, Jesus has been leading us to diagnose our real answer to that question, mostly by looking at our checkbooks. Your wallet will most often betray your real master. How you view money, save it, spend it, says a lot about you. 
And that's what we've been learning here. Are you someone who saves and saves because you only feel secure when you have a solid nest egg? Or are you someone who spends and spends because you only feel happy when life is full of many possessions? Are you someone who does not give? You clench your heart and your fist. You refuse to give away because you're only looking out for yourself. Have you made money an idol? I might also ask this. Has your heart for the Lord grown cold? Do you feel insensitive to the things of the Lord? Pick up your Bible. You read. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You try and pray. It feels lifeless. You sing songs at church. It feels kind of empty. Well, could it be that your spiritual vision of the glory of Christ has been clouded by greed, covetousness, materialism? I don't know the answer. You tell me. You have to examine your own heart. Do you find yourself living for this world as if this life is the only life? Have you blindfolded yourself to things above? Are you experiencing a type of spiritual ruin as a result? You know, by way of preview, do you want to know one of the most debilitating byproducts of such a spiritually darkened vision? It is anxiety, which just so happens to be the next section in Matthew 6. And some are so focused on this life and its treasures, even its necessities, that they forget there's a God above who's got them in his hands. He's their father now. They forget all that. And as a result, their lives are just filled with worry, fear, anxiety. People think money buys happiness. But how much sadness has been purchased by money? There is a better way. It's the way of the Lord. It's the way of just serving Christ as your master. And that is what we must wholeheartedly do. In this final verse, Jesus is not outright telling us what to do. He's just making a contrast and stating you can't serve God in wealth. You can try, but you can't do it. There's only one Lord and master, but clearly implicit is the call to serve God. It's not like he'll be okay if you choose wealth, but effectively then this is Jesus, the greater Joshua echoing the words of the first Joshua saying, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve and go ahead, pick your God. If Baal is Lord master, serve him. If money is Lord, serve it. But if, if Jesus is Lord, serve him. Choose today and live accordingly. For us, we know it's not really a question anymore because we know Jesus is Lord, but therefore you must follow him. This involves then being heavenly minded, not greedy, but generous, ready to share, more concerned with storing up treasure in heaven than using your wealth to serve self. And as often as you fall short of this, as often as you're tempted by the love of money, You become double-minded. As often as that happens, just repent and return. Uh, I'll uh, read for you again the writing of James, which is always so helpful here. Drawing so much inspiration from the Sermon on the Mount, James gives counsel to double-minded Christians. Talking about believers who are acting like they're double-minded. Literally, he says double-souled. I want you to listen to what he says and his piercing words. James 4, 4 through 8. He's talking to believers, but he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, hopefully from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Though married to Christ, if you find your eyes have wandered, your heart has gone after another lover, chiefly the things of this world, well, heed the call of all scripture in James, repent and return. Submit to God, return to him, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts through Christ. No longer fix your eyes on God and wealth. That's double vision. You'll lose your way. Anyone trying to fix their focus on two points can't see anything. Let your single-minded devotion to Christ fully dictate how you live and how you give. You know, in all, throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he's trying to give us a spiritual vision of the kingdom. The fullness of that kingdom is coming, coming, but we've been made citizens of it right now. And he's telling us to live now with our eyes fixed on this kingdom and its king and its treasure knowing that this world is passing away. It's so amazing how much of the Christian life is either blessed or cursed by where you set your heart or your mind or your eyes or your uh, devotion. So you need to set all of the above on the above. Serve God, not wealth. And then you'll find how God makes eternally rich those who seek him. I'll leave you with Paul's prayer, which would be my prayer for you, for me. Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Our Father, that is our, our desire and our hearts cry to you that, that you help us, enable us to seek you with a pure heart, with a single-minded devotion, with clear eyes, that love you. You've made this world good, filled with many good things. Wealth is not the enemy, but how quickly we are seduced and deceived, tempted, lured away to love, to serve the creation, forgetting the creator. And we get obsessed with the gifts and forget the giver, the one to whom we owe our lives and ought to magnify. We thank you, as James says, that you give greater grace, that grace has already come in Christ, who died, who rose again, who who made payment for all of our sins. But help us to walk more fully in his light. He's given us the way. He's opened our eyes. May we not stumble in the darkness, blindfold ourselves. Keep us free from the temptation of of wealth and learn how to use it uh, for your glory, reflecting a heart that, that loves you, seeks first your kingdom, your righteousness. Work this heart deeper in us by your spirit and by your grace. Uh, purify us. We want to give you our hearts, our lives, our money, all things. You're the God who gave everything to us in your son, not to repay, but because truly we, we love you now and seek to worship you. So make in us a heart of a true worshiper. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.